So good morning. If you turn in your Bibles to the prophet Micah, so that is, um, I think the easiest way to get there is if you turn left at Matthew. If you're more familiar with where Matthew is, you turn left. Um, If you're familiar with Jonah is, you're going to go right. So the prophet of Micah may not be the most highlighted version of your Bible. Uh, uh, We'll be reading uh, from chapter 6 and the first eight verses. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring fountains of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How... Have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Or will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we want to learn from your word. We don't want to just go through the motions. We want to stand and sit and serve under your word. We're not above it. We're not beside it. Holy Spirit, we ask that you teach us and you counsel us and you uh, make the word stick into those deep parts that only God you can see. So that from the inside out, we are changed. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So by way of introduction a little bit, I, um, I know many of you. I don't know all of you. Um, I've had the privilege to serve formally inside the church, also in mission organizations. Uh, I am currently in international education formally. Um, but it is good to be with you and to look at God's word with you together. Um, I want to introduce Micah and where we uh, pick up into the story. Um, but by way of introducing that, I want to just start with uh, at least setting the context, if you will, um, and one through a personal lens. I had the privilege of, in college of doing an internship at a law firm in London, England, 
where we sought to defend the accused. Sounds lofty, doesn't it? It always sounds better. You defend the accused. Um, sounds better than going to court for the criminals or defending the unpopular, that sort of thing. But as we look at Micah, we see an indictment not against stereotypical criminals, do we? We see an indictment against us. Now that I got your, like, now we're a little, I mean, we're getting sober quickly, aren't we? Um, and verse 1, it says this, Hear what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. He's invoking creation against us first, isn't he? And we get to verse 2, Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against who? His people. And he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? So we, we sort of pick this up as God has asked us and asked his people, in particular Israel specifically, but then to us by extension, what have I done to you that you act this way? Uh, the case is elaborated on, but not in the way we would expect. We're expecting uh, him to, to, to maybe unpack what we've done wrong after that introduction, but he, God doesn't. Look at verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Uh, but verse 4 is not what we expect. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. What, had he, what did God just do? He didn't do what we expected, number one. I mean, isn't this what we do to each other when we're a little bit sick and fed up and we're saying, what have I, you know, what have you done for me lately and what have I done to you? And then we sort of give you the litany of things of what you've done wrong. But he doesn't. He gives a litany of the things that he's done right. <laughs> and in listing all those saving acts of God that we tend to take for granted, or at least that Israel is taking for granted in our context. Well, I want to pause a little bit because you're like, well, but that's Micah, and they're not like us. And that was, I mean, this is the Older Testament. No, the New Testament was 2,000 years ago, so this is a really long time ago. And how is that relevant to 2016? Well, let me give you the uh, context a little bit of what Micah is dealing with. And I want to be really brief. Uh, because I'm a history geek a little bit, and I can get really mired in history detail, and if some of you are too, and you're going to want to know more, and I'm just not going to tell you. And, um, but if you, the case gets up through verse 7, the setting that Micah is dealing with is a time period where Israel has political corruption on the inside and the threat of violence on the outside. So you can tell we can't relate to this at all, right? <laughs> Political corruption on the inside from sort of its government leaders and people who have a certain influence, and on the outside, the threat of violence from the Assyrians and uh, 
you know, unexpected violence that arises from sort of smaller factions around the world. Again, totally unrelatable, right? No, I mean, it's strikingly relevant. And uh, of course, God's word is always relevant, but even as we look at something that happened so long ago, it's really humbling to see that human beings for all of our progress, seem to struggle with some of the same stuff over and again. So, but think on this a little bit. It's, it is quite unbelievable. As you, look, you and I look at our own lives, how have we sought to live as professing Christians? We still, don't we, find reasons to ignore God's word, complain about God's gives, gifts, and live as we want more than God wants us to. Don't we kind of want our own way most of the time? Even though we know that we are set apart for something good, something better, the gospel in itself is always an invitation to something better. That's why it's always good news. And so by the time we get to one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible, some of you, and in fact, uh, if you've lingered around the church at all, have heard of Micah 6.8 probably at some point. If not, I think it's on a refrigerator magnet bumper sticker it's one of those things that is a, what commentators would call a summary of the gospel in some ways, gospel behavior, but you may have heard of that but not put it in context at all. And uh, when we see this question from God saying, what have I done to you? The answer comes initially in verse 6 with, what shall I come before the Lord? How do I bow myself before God on high? So let me pause there. After the case is made, what is verse 6 trying to do that is so like what we try to do? It's a defense, isn't it? It's immediately trying to defend yourself. How many times have you actually done that? And we do it from the mundane all the way to the big stuff. Um, I'll speak on behalf of those of us guys who are married. Have you ever gone to the grocery store, come home, and not actually purchased everything that was on the list? And then what do you do? You actually defend yourself. How stupid is that? You actually start to give a reason as to why you purchased the two packages of chocolate cookies as opposed to the bread and milk. And you have good reasons for that. You've actually, without thinking about it, immediately said, well, this would, it's a, they were on sale. And because they were on sale, you, had, you just thought it was economically frugal to neglect the bread and milk for the chocolate cookies. Whereas the wise man who's been married at least longer would have just shut up, turned around, and gone back to the store and done what he probably should have done in the first place. But verse 6 is immediately a defense. With what shall I come before the Lord? And the, as it progresses, it's actually rather amazing and striking and humbling in everything. I mean, look at it. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? That's how it starts. I know what I'll do. God's upset with me. He's made an actually compelling case. Here's what I'll do. I will up the ante on my offering. Now, Pastor's done, Pastor Luke's done an actually remarkable job walking us through with this, the offering system in the past several weeks. So we actually know what he's talking about here when we say burnt offering. 
But isn't that remarkable? Shall I come before him? I'm going, here's what I'm going to do. It's a very compelling case. I know what I'm going to do. First, I'm going to, I'm going to give more. In fact, I'm going to give something that is huge. Burnt offering's no small deal. When Abraham was going to offer up Isaac, that was a burnt offering. A burnt offering is to cover sin, and it's, it's a complete, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal. Well, it, he doesn't end there. Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? So I'm going to up the ante. I'm not just going to give my regular offering. We're talking thousands now. Because it's a compelling case. I mean, look what he said. Hear what the Lord says. Hear the indictment of the Lord against his people. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to bring burnt offerings. Maybe I'm going to increase the wealth of what I'm doing. Well, in case you don't think that's even remarkable enough, look at what happens in verse 7. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That's a bit overdoing it, isn't it? Now I'm going to offer child sacrifices? Because of the guilt, maybe, or the case that's being made? It just ups the ante every single time, and it builds up... Surely, we're not so rebellious that someone would offer their only son. I mean, that's crazy. I'm sorry. If you, any, you guys can offend me if you want, or in my attempt, I've, even on my worst day of offending you, you don't, you don't get to touch my son. Don't lose that. We'll probably revisit that idea before the end. But then we get to verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 6.8 then serves as not only a summary statement, not of the indictment anymore, but as a reminder that our lives are no longer marked by what they used to be marked by. We don't have to prove or perform. And here's something I don't want you to lose because I'm going to unpack the three points in the rest of the, the morning. But we don't have to prove or perform as if we're walking in front of God. We're being asked to live a life marked by things that show we actually walk with God. And I don't want you to miss the difference. On the one case, we actually try to perform as if we're in front of God. God is here, or God is over here. He's watching us all the time, and we're trying to show him that we got our act together. That's religion. We're trying to say no longer that this is a reconciled relationship, and so what Micah 6.8 is talking about is not performing in front of God, but it's actually walking with God. And what does that look like? This is important before we move on, because if you think this is just a list, a to-do list, in which you tick off the boxes and now you're got it together. I know, I was just forgetting. I was having a bad day. And you've all had no good, very bad days. 
If not, there's some kid named Alexander that will tell you about him. But if you have had a no good, very bad day, you just want to chalk it up for I'm not perfect. And to err is human. But it's very different if you're in relationship with someone, isn't it? To walk with someone, have that no good, very bad day in your home with your wife and children. That looks very different than the rest of the world. Have that no good, very bad day with your best friend. Have that no good, very bad day with someone who feels the pain of what you're going through. So we're not talking about walking in front. We're talking about walking with. The distinction, and in this case, prepositions are important. So what does that look like? I want to suggest that it looks like three things, and they're not even creative points because they're right in the text. First, we're going to look at what it, that our, we should live a life marked by justice. And secondly, we uh, are going to look at what a life that is marked by kindness, loving kindness, and one that celebrates mercy. And uh, thirdly, we are going to look at a, what a life that is marked by wise humility looks like. So let's look at first, Christians marked by a life that does Justice. Micah is telling us in clear terms that injustice does harm. So let's look over. So if you flip over in Micah to chapter 3, and we have to compare. This is not the first time that justice has come up in Micah as a whole. So look at verse 3 and 1 to 3. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Of all people, you should know this. How would they know it? These people were enslaved. Of all people, they know what it's right to be mistreated. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like a meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Ouch. Here's the basic gist. How many have ever said this to your children or have heard this from your parents? You know better. You know better than this. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 3. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? And it goes on. Verse 4 then in chapter 3. They will cry to the Lord. He will not answer them. He will hide his face. Why? Because of the injustice that they're perpetuating. And you're like, well, what? that's fine. What is injustice? Let me be really clear, and then people in the medical community get this on like day one, right? The oath to do no harm. First, one of the basic foundational rules that we underline is anything prior to treatment, we go first expecting that no further harm is done. And so if we can even just the basic commitment to do no harm, and we look again then at chapter 3, in the first couple of verses, we recognize that part of injustice is actually harming somebody else and actually harming another neighbor. So when we talk about racism or violence against creation or inequality or oppressing one gender over another or unequal pay, or the whole list goes on, it's harm to someone else. That's the basic 
Just of it. We're not, I think we try to complicate it sometimes in, in talking, and you've seen this too. It's actually on the news. I'm always sort of floored. Every time a, like a really pressing story is on the news now, they bring in experts that no one's ever heard of, right? And so-and-so wrote a book on this, and they're an expert in inequality. And they wrote a pamphlet on this and another thing. And we come up, and what are they saying? They're saying basically what we just said. It's not helpful to your neighborhood. So injustice actually harms real people. Real neighborhoods suffer as a result of it. We are to push back then against the effects of the fall, which have perpetuated injustice. What does the Lord require of us? He says, to do justice. On the negative side, it's quit harming people. Stop. Stop doing harm to other people. On the more positive side, it's to start to understand what Scripture says about what is right and what is good and what is true and what is beautiful when it's other people in your neighborhood. So think about the neighborhood you live in. I don't know where you all live. I sort of have an idea about where we are in the world, central Illinois. But think about the neighborhood in which you currently live. How can you, in very tangible ways, push back the effects of the fall in your neighborhood? Here's the beauty of Christianity that actually challenges us. Jesus came in real space and real time and asks us to do the same thing, to do acts of justice and mercy and kindness in real space and real time. So think of the neighborhood you live in and how have you helped to push back the effects of the fall at the address in which you currently live. This is what Mike is getting at, and this is the uncomfortable part. He's actually pressing it down to us so that actually the idea of justice hits us on the street and in the paths and where we walk. Because it's a very different story if you're against an issue, isn't it? Lots of us are against issues until they're tied to people. It's a very different conversation to say something negative against homosexuality when you put someone's real name to it. That's a different conversation. If you're against poverty until you say, do you have any friends that are poor? Do you know anyone that you hang out with that is below the poverty line? So why I'm trying to press it down that so that we know, we're not saying that it suddenly is a game changer in the issue, but I'm saying let's take the issue and press it down into your neighborhood. And we're called not to love ideas, we're called to love people. And in a place like this, near a rich campus like this, we love ideas. We love them. And I, just as a confession, I really do too. Because one, I have a lot of good ones. <laughs> and truth be known, some of my ideas are amazingly beneficial to the world if you would just listen to them. But uh, we also love talking about stuff at a certain level until it causes us to interact with somebody. So we love the idea of forgiveness until you have to forgive someone. We love that. Forgive it. We love the underdog, don't we? I don't know what your bracket looked like this past March. Mine was a total disaster. But we love rooting for the basketball team that no one thinks is going to win. Isn't that the theme of every Disney sports movie anyway? 
the something horrible happens, but we know it's, you're not going to go home in total despair because the underdog come close to winning or did something well at the end. But it makes a difference, and this is where Micah is pressing us, and this is the indictment. The indictment is not, you guys have totally blown it in categorizing the world. No, you're totally blown it in actually how you treat real people. So when he says to do justice, we are to push back effects of the fall and think of how that is going in your own neighborhood. And it could be something just as simple as, hey, when you're out shoveling your walk because it's snowed, just shovel the neighbors too. Just don't have to make a big deal of it. Just do something. I like one, one uh, I think it was Zig Ziglar that actually said this, but there's um, some motivational speaker who keeps saying there's never a traffic jam on, when, on the extra mile. And it's this idea, if you're going to go the extra mile, don't worry, that, that road isn't clogged, ever. Um, I want to read a quote then um, from a guy named Phil Riken in this book called Loving Jesus More. When we think of this, he goes, too often, quote, we think of obedience as a joyless duty or a legalistic demand. Jesus liberates us by teaching us to think of obedience as our loving response to his loving grace. Our Father in Heaven does not go around saying, just do as I say, all the time. Instead, He invites us to offer obedience from the heart as a gift of our love. David Watson says it like this, God's love language to us is mercy and grace. That's amazing, isn't it? That his love language to us isn't, just do what I say all the time. I'm like, can't you, any parent, you ever heard that growing up? I heard that and I actually was dumb enough to question that. Which probably tells you a little bit about myself, but also tells you about a little bit about some days that I had in child. You're going, somebody says, just do what you're told. What are they saying when they're saying that? They're, they're saying conversation over. <laughs> just do it. But why? Now, remember what I said earlier. This is the important. When you're performing in front of somebody and there's a certain amount of distance, just do what you're told. So I don't ask the, I don't want to, you know, hands being raised, but if you've ever been pulled over for going a little bit above what the sign says you should do in your car, and you see the lights flash behind you, and a guy walks up, what's he want you to do? Just what the law says, isn't it? And the first question is, always an indictment. And now some of us are dumb enough to try to even defend ourselves against that. And it's irrelevant by that point. But how does that make you feel? Think about that. How does it make you feel emotionally when the lights go off behind you. Don't your heart start racing a little bit? Some of you actually think God operates that way. Like you're going down the highway, the lights go on behind you all the time. And that's not true. It's not what Micah is saying either. Micah is saying this is how you are to walk with God. And he says, first, your life should be marked by doing justice. And you should be doing justice to real people in real neighborhoods. Secondly, and this leads us to our second point, that the Christian is marked by life that loves kindness and celebrates mercy. Now, it's interesting that the most famous verse in Micah 6, 
or Micah, period, is 6.8, but look at the end of how um, Micah and his whole book concludes. Go all the way then to verse, chapter 7 and verse 18, to the end of the book. Who is a God like you that pardons iniquity and passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That's who we walk with. In case that didn't sink in, I'm going to read a couple of the sentences again. Who is a God like you that pardons iniquity, passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. And who's this written to? His people. By extension, who? You and me. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. This is worth actually reading every day, isn't it? Because we forget what God is like. We forget who God is like. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You ever seen someone stamp out a cigarette? What does it look like? I've never done this, by the way. Um, you see it, they do it, and what do they do? It's a stamping out. Do you ever see that? That's the image. You ever stamp that? Why? Because they don't. They want the fire to go out. They don't want to be blamed for burning down the forest. Smokey the Bear told them that much. That's terrible. They're stamping something out. So if you have a visual image in mind, now look at what the end of Micah is saying. God will tread our iniquities underfoot. And he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Is your God like that? Is that your vision of God? Is that the one that you walk with? Or do you think he's actually uh, not stamped it out? He's actually picked it up and now says, hey, 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 you, know, uh, you need to remember this. You blew this a couple of years ago, but look at this. I want you to look at this again. Look at this. Look at this filth. Right? That was the first thing my mom would say sometimes. Or walk into my, her, she'd walk into my room. Just look at this. I've been in it for hours, and <laughs> the problem is I'm totally fine with it. God isn't like that. He's not saying, well, look at this. Look at what you did. He goes, well, Bo, I thought you just said he had a, you know, he's bringing an indictment. He's been in an indictment about what? He's for, what are they forgetting? That's the shocking part. Now, look at this. Back to Micah chapter 6. What did they forget? They didn't, he didn't say... In verse 4, look at all the filth and disgusting things you guys do on a daily basis. He said what? Look at me. <laughs> look at what God has done. That's the shift. He brings the indictment, and that's the, the, the shocking part to us. He brings the indictment and then says, not what we expect. He didn't say, look at all your filth and look at all your sin and you just disgust me. He says in verse 4, you're forgetting everything I've done for you, which makes me think you forgot me. And then he gets to then 
the enemy, that's why he asked, what have I done to you? What have I done that you forgot me? Well, we're told to do loving kindness, um, that our lives should be marked not just by justice, but to love kindness or loving kindness. The, um, we don't have an English word that does justice to the word hesed, but that's the word that's in here. And um, sort of my version of this, that it indicates a very stubborn, very sacrificial, and very unconditional love. Because we don't, and you can hyphenate that if you want, but I... That word doesn't go into English very easily because it's so rich with meaning. We want to say things like uh, loving kindness, which we don't even use on a regular basis. So that, that it's sometimes hard. Have you heard the phrase random acts of kindness? That's not at all what we're talking about here. Not even close. But here's the shocking part for us, and this is why we let ourselves off the hook so much. If we knew of someone who was constantly doing what we call random acts of kindness, we would think highly of them. <laughs> no. Um, we're not talking random acts of kindness. We're talking about this thing that he says is very stubborn, very sacrificial, very unconditional. Um, random acts of kindness it makes us feel good about ourselves, doesn't it? Um, but... This isn't holding the door for your date. And this is not walking your grandmother across the street. And I'm not saying don't do that, by the way. That's actually already assumed when he talks about this. This is actually holding the door for absolutely anyone who needs the door held, not just your date. This is anyone who has a need. Or this is helping anyone, not just the grandma, across the street. This is a stubborn love that expects nothing in return. And in fact, this is a loving kindness that's actually on the verge of annoying because it refuses to give up on people. A person who catches your attention because they simply will not stop caring for you keeps your attention, don't they? But at first, isn't it really uncomfortable? If you're honest with it, if someone just refuses to not be nice to you? Don't we think, because we assume, you're like, oh, they'll, they're just faking it for a while, but if they refuse, they refuse, they just refuse not to think well of you or to do good for you. So we're being asked to consider two things so far in our Christian life. One is that acts of justice that we should be doing, acts of justice that actually fight against acts that do harm to people. And then these acts then are done in real time, in real space. They're done in real people with real neighborhoods. And secondly, we're, try, we're, we're to be doing acts of loving kindness that expect nothing in return. So can I present, can you and I present evidence of this? Is this sort of our, is, if we're going to really make this defense, can we expect to say, um, hey, look at, at least look at what I've done. I've not expected anything in return. <laughs> um, and I'm doing things that actually are the opposite of harm to people. Uh, so think on that. Let me, I want to quote Francis Schaeffer. Um, he wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster, which is a great title. Um, but l listen to this quote. He says, Yet without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen, 
even when we give proper answers. Let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. Yes, because for years the Orthodox Evangelical Church has done this very poorly. So it is well to spend time learning to answer the questions of men and women who are about who are all about us. But, but, after we have done our best to communicate the truth to a lost world, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true, true Christians. Let me read the final part again for two reasons. One, I just could barely say it. And secondly, I don't want you to miss its relevance to Micah 6. After we have done our best to communicate the truth to a lost world, we must never forget that the final apologetic to which Jesus gives us is observable love for each other. Meaning, it's not just I, I love you or the saying where someone says, hey, I, why don't you tell your spouse that you love them anymore? And he goes, well, I told them when I got married. Is that sufficient? No, it's not. Observable acts of love inside and outside the church. So, point one, acts of justice that fight against acts that do harm to people. Point two, acts of loving kindness that expect nothing in return. And we get to point three, that the Christian is marked by life that walks with wise humility. If you look at chapter four, verse two, again, not the first time that humility has come up. Chapter 4, verse 2, um, we're talking about this walking. And I'll actually start at verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. People shall flow to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. Verse 4 of chapter 4, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, and here's the contrast, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. So what we get to verse 8, the summary is not just that we are humble, but we are humble because of who we're walking with. Now, have you, any of you have ever had the chance to get an autograph from someone you admired, or you're walking with somebody who is relatively famous, you feel like it's a little bit humbling, isn't it? They're famous, you're not. Maybe they have a big position or something like that. The translation here could be, to do justice, love kindness, and to walk wisely with your God, but it would be also wise to walk humbly. And we are required to walk humbly with our God. Let me read yet one more quote, and this time um, it's from a book called The Habits of Grace. Think of the spiritual discipline, says Don Whitney, as we, ways we can place ourselves in the path of God's grace. Or as Jonathan Edwards put it, you can endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of what God is doing. We cannot force Jesus' hand, but we can put ourselves along the paths of grace where we can be expectant of his blessings. 
God's regular channels of grace, as we shall see, are his voice, his ear, and his body. He often showers his people with unexpected favor, but typically the grace that sends our roots deepest truly grows us up in Christ, prepares our soul for a new day, produces lasting spiritual maturity, and increases the current of our joy, streams from the ordinary and unspectacular paths of fellowship, prayer, and Bible intake, given practical expression in countless forms and habits. And while these simple habits of grace may seem as unimpressive as everyday switches and faucets, through them, God regularly stands ready to give us true light and water of life. Don't miss that. We think we grow through mountaintop experiences, or we grow when we feel like we're growing. What the commentator is saying and what our passage is saying is you actually grow as you walk. As you walk. As you walk. Does anybody see anybody that walks really, really fast? And you don't get the impression they're paying attention, do you? They're just trying to get from A to B as quickly as humanly possible. But if you're walking with somebody and you're having a conversation as you walk, what does that look like? What it's supposed to look like is you and God. So uh, I don't know if you feel like your relationship with God looks something like that, but are you walking day to day so close to God that it looks like you're walking with, having a conversation with, ongoing, hey, what do I do about this? So you pause. You ever walk when your children, and so this actually is the case. My children are hearing this. So young people, we talk, we use a lot of illustrations about our kids because you just consume sort of our mental space for so long. But when my kids were little, it took forever to walk somewhere. And here's why. They would stop and look at everything. And then we point this out and we point this out. What, what were they doing though? They were constant in relationship. Dad, look at this, and look at this, and look at the head. Did you know this? And look at this, and look at and what, this. And I'm, I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. How much longer? How much farther? Where are we going? What are we going to get there? What are we doing? Why are, saying, why are they saying all of that? Partly because we're just there. And they want to Relate. How much farther? Not much farther. When are we going to get there? Not much farther. Are things going to be okay? They'll be okay. But daddy, it hurts. I'm not going anywhere. But daddy, I'm, I don't feel well. I'm going to be right here. Walk humbly with your God. The focus is not on the work acts of justice that fight against acts that do harm to people, point one. Point two, acts of loving kindness that expect nothing in return. And then point three, acts of wise humility that walk at the speed of God's unfolding plan. God is in no fat hurry. Notice that? He doesn't seem to care about our calendar whatsoever. And that's a good thing. We seem to be in a fat hurry to go here, there, and wherever. But God is in control and is in no hurry. Why? Because we are to walk humbly with our God. 
But you have no idea. Tomorrow's Monday morning, and I got this going on this week, and you have no idea what it's like. There's this, we're just slammed, and it's, you know, it's the end of the semester, and we've got all this other stuff going on. But we are called to walk humbly with our God. But you have, uh, it, you know, we state hasn't passed a budget. The economy is sluggish. We're in an election year, and have you seen our candidates? And we are to walk humbly with our God. But being a female in this culture is rough. I have to career, and I have to be a stay-at-home mom, and I have to do the cooking and the cleaning, and I could do everything that people told me to do before 1950, and I could do everything that I'm supposed to do, and you don't know what it's like to do the pressures, but we are to walk humbly before our God. But I don't know why I want to get married. Half of them end in divorce, but we are to walk humbly with, or do you get the point here? So much of what the indictment is telling the Israelites, and by extension us, is that we want to either walk alone, we want to tell God who is somewhere over there what to do, we think he's telling us what to do from a distance, where he is saying, and that sums up the entire first eight verses, but is to walk humbly with your God. Walk. Don't run ahead of him. Don't tell him to hurry up. He's not telling you to hurry up. He, I think he's way ahead of you anyways. That's fair. But to walk humbly with your God. And here's the striking point. You are a new creation. And you need to remember that God's mercy and grace is so deep inside of you that you are actually fundamentally different. Something has changed. So, lest you forget, unless I do a poor job of pointing to the external instead, what he's saying is that the act comes before the feeling. The act comes before the feeling. But you have changed. Something is different. Mercy and grace has gone deep inside. So a couple of months ago, I had my first surgery that involved me going under, going out. They put the mask on and you wake up three hours later, right? What happened is that they removed, repaired something that was faulty inside of me. So when I actually opened my eyes, I was no longer the same person that walked into that hospital. I walked out having something inside of me completely different. Some of you walked in here today thinking you're going to walk out the same person. God is saying, no, he's going to tinker with your insides, and he's going to make sure that you walk out of here a little bit differently. And if that has never happened to you, there's pastors and elders that would like to talk to you, but he's tinkering with your insides. Why? Because this is actually where Micah is getting at. And friends, I want to close with this thought. Your lives should show evidence that we have something that has changed inside of us. After all, we cannot be content to just give the external stuff. That's what happened, remember, verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord, and it's all external. I'll give you money, and I'll give you this, and I'll give you that. What's he asking for? He's asking us to dig deeper and give from that which is so secret sometimes to us, or so private or are so scary 
That part that he went in and changed, that heart, that yucky thought, that uh, thing about you has now fundamentally changed because you are a new creation and you are walking humbly with your God and he wants you to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly from that space, from that place. Our defense is, oh, hey, I'll give you everything but that space right there. I'll give you increased wealth. I'll do whatever. But he's saying, no, stop, walk, walk, and now reach down deep inside and give something to your neighbor today from that place, that part. Give something to your spouse, guys. Give something to your spouse from that if you haven't written that letter in a while, do it. If you haven't looked her in the eye when all distractions are gone, do it. Date your children. Make sure they know what your heart. Make sure they know your heart. Why? Because coming full circle, it's not that we're trying to perform in front we are, as Christians, truly trying to walk with. And so as you go forth, you are really not alone, but that's what the world is looking for, observable acts of love, of evidence that you are walking with God. Because God is wanting you to understand deep inside your heart that, don't miss this, because Micah doesn't want us to miss it either. Because the God that you walk with will not retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will stamp out or tread our iniquities underfoot. But you're like, well, Al, he wouldn't go so far as to give his only son, would he? He would do that too. And oh, the power of the cross for us all. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do pray that you would teach us to walk with you. And as we walk, that we would talk with you. And that we would love our neighbors. We would love to do kindness. We would be humble before you because there's never a day where we're not walking with you. And as we pause and we reflect on the cross and all of that it entails we know that not only will you not retain your anger forever you will not retain your anger before you because you have already offered your only son who is and always will be perfect sufficient gracious and merciful we pray that we would understand this on this day for jesus sake amen